God accepts me more than he accepts you. Why? Because I'm a pastor. Does this shock you? See, pastors have a special in with God. Did you know that? You don't have that as a lay person. I have that. Not only have I been theologically trained by some of the most conservative scholars, Bible scholars, not only have I been ordained, but I'm a third-generation pastor. I was practically born in the church. I am more righteous than you. That's kind of shocking, actually. I, you know, after you do a, a little bit of, uh, of a confession there, which is very much humbling... Now, if I truly believed all that garbage, I hope that you would quickly kick me to the curb and find a pastor who actually believed the gospel. What I just said is grossly antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but sadly, it expresses a view many people have of righteousness, even professing Christians. Some people actually believe they are less righteous Because they don't have this or that gift or ability. They feel substandard. That's the same thing. It's attaching righteousness to status or role or gifting or achievement instead of Christ. Some people believe they are righteous because of what they do or because of what they don't do. Law-keeping is their righteousness, which is really just self-righteousness. Where is Christ in that? Where is Christ in self-righteousness? I once asked a woman about her faith, and she ended up talking about her parents' faith, uh, as if she didn't have a testimony of her own. People believe they are righteous for all kinds of reasons. I grew up Christian. I go to church. I was baptized. I said the prayer. I take the Lord's Supper. I help out. I'm nice. All kinds of things, all kinds of different things, none of which have anything to do with why God accepts people and counts them as righteous. Why does God accept you and consider you righteous in his sight? Why? Saints, the moment we say Jesus plus something else, we lose the gospel entirely. Entirely. Add something to Jesus and you lose Jesus. Swell up with pride and either gloat in your self-righteousness and piety or wallow in your insecurity and inadequacy. Our righteousness is Christ alone. This is a a two-part message aiming at helping you better understand justification by faith alone. And I I want to help you see that God accepts you as righteous in his sight, not because of your status or achievement, but only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by faith. These two um, messages can help you slay self-righteousness. Slay it. In your heart, fortify faith in your heart and intensify rejoicing in the Lord in your heart. And I want us to walk away from this two-part message boasting in Christ like we have never boasted in him before. So we're going to start out with a very simple but profound point. Rejoice in the Lord, not in how good you are. 
Rejoice in the Lord, not in how good you are. Paul is beginning to conclude his letter. He addressed, addresses all the saints, men and women alike, as brothers. A word that often refers to male siblings, but in some places, uh, verse 1 included, refers to the household of faith. Paul's opening confirms this to all the saints, all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus were great servants of the Lord. We saw that last week, but Paul was careful to instruct the Philippians not to rejoice in them, not to rejoice in them, but to rejoice in the Lord at work in them. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord, in the Lord, because the Lord is the origin and object of joy. If we were to retrace everything Paul had said up to this point in Philippians about joy, we would quickly realize that joy is inseparable from Christ and has nothing to do with self-esteem, nothing to do with status, nothing to do with success, nothing to do with circumstance. In chapter 3, verses 12 through 11, we see Paul deconstruct the idea that personal status, rank, position, achievement, or success can contribute to salvation in any way. None of it is gain. All of it is loss. Only the righteousness of Christ is sufficient and worth rejoicing in. Rejoice in the Lord Rejoice in the Lord. It is in the Lord that true rejoicing happens because it is through union with the Lord Jesus Christ that God produces joy in us. You must be in the Lord to be truly joyful, to truly rejoice. And it is in union with the Lord that the Lord is enjoyed. That makes the Lord the joy of the rejoicing. And that's Psalm 40. Three, verse 4. So the Lord is both the origin and the object of true joy. Have you ever considered this? That God commands you to feel joy in Him. Now we'll go deeper into this concept in chapter 4, but rejoice in the Lord right here is an imperative, a command. God commands his people to be happy in him. To not feel joy in God is to not rejoice in the Lord. And I know this is complex. We are complex people. But think hard about this. Rejoicing in the Lord is something God commands us to do. If we don't, we sin against God. And yet rejoicing is something that the Holy Spirit has to produce in us. Because it is God who works in us to will, to desire. So then, as we struggle to feel joy in God as we should, we are utterly in need of God's grace. It is through trust in Christ that God rejoices our hearts. Without trust in Christ, we shouldn't expect to feel anything about God. Faith is the conduit through which God transmits his joy to you. Oh, to rejoice in anything outside of the Lord is to act against our true and lasting joy. Is there anything outside of Christ that is worth rejoicing in? 
The second part of verse 1 seems to suggest that Paul had taught them these things already when he was with them in person, and now he's just repeating them in writing. It wasn't any trouble for him to do so. He didn't hesitate at all. He was glad to restate it in writing, which provided the Philippians a certain doctrinal and spiritual stability or safety, which brings us to the second point. Trust God's word. It provides you doctrinal and spiritual safety. Trust God's word. Realize that Paul's letter, this is very important to understand, Paul's letter to the Philippians is the very word of God. God breathed it out through Paul, and it was this apostolic and Christ-sanctioned doctrine that protected the Philippians against spiritual harm. Paul's teaching provided safety for them against gospel-opposing perspectives and philosophies and and thinking, like the doctrine of the dog-like, evil-doing mutilators of the flesh. Chapter 3 is very doctrinal. There are people today who just get all uptight when you talk about drawing doctrinal lines. This text draws doctrinal lines, which safeguards God's people from doctrinal error, which is serious and leads to egregious sin. Paul's explanation of justification by faith alone defended them against self-righteousness and took them to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ the Lord, which is the gateway to everlasting happiness and joy and contentment. So studying the Bible is not a chore. It's not a chore. It is a citadel of truth. The more we know it and assimilate it, the more it protects us, the more it serves us. A mind filled with Bible is an impenetrable fortress. No scripture to the point where it protects you well. Here's the third point. Beware of any worldview, any at all, any worldview that teaches salvation is found in Christ plus something else. Be very careful with that. Three times Paul said, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who was Paul warning them against? Well, obviously not honorable men like Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, though your dog might wear cashmere sweaters and eat haagen out of your bowl, dogs were not like that in the ancient world. They were mangy, snarling, dirty, uh, unclean mutts in the street. One scholar noted that dogs were considered the most despicable, insolent, and miserable of creatures. In the Old Testament, the term dog was applied to felonious enemies of God. In Isaiah 56, dogs referred to the spiritual leaders of Israel who had no understanding and went their own way and sought selfish gain. In Revelation 22.15, this was very stark, the, the dogs were the evil people who were kept outside of the e- eternal heavenly celestial city. So Paul here is referring to bad guys. These are not the good guys. They're the bad guys. And you should also know that Jews used the term dogs to describe Gentiles because they considered Gentiles unclean. But as you'll see later in just a little bit, Paul reversed the application. Next, Paul said, look out for the evildoers. And they were people who did uh, heinous things, morally reprehensible things. Lastly, Paul mentioned those who mutilate the flesh. And this is where it becomes clear who, who he's referring to. Who mutilates 
or cuts off flesh? Well, Paul mentions circumcision in the next verse, which is a huge clue. What is circumcision? It's a cutting off of flesh. By saying to the Gentile Philippians now, very important to understand, by saying to the Gentile Philippians, for we are the circumcision, he was implying that those who mutilate the flesh are not the circumcision or not the true circumcision. Why would he say that? Because he was referring to Judaizers or any Jew who attached salvific significance to their Jewish lineage and law-keeping. He flipped the application of the dogs from the Gentiles onto the Judaizers themselves. Paul's logic then in the following verses as he lists out his impeccable Jewish resume solidifies that he was talking about Judaizers. Judaizers were enemies of the gospel of Christ because they They didn't boast in Christ alone, but in their circumcision, in their ethnic identity as well. They added their status and works to the gospel. They went further. They also insisted that Christians should obey all of the Old Testament ceremonial Jewish laws, which were already fulfilled in Christ. Now, why was Paul using such strong and, uh, and terrible language against these people. Because anytime you add something to Jesus, you lose the sufficiency of Jesus. You advocate something contrary to the gospel. Add something to Jesus and the gospel is lost. You lose Christ. Even if Jesus remains part of the salvation equation. Beware of anyone who teaches that salvation is accomplished by Christ plus something else. Beware of any worldview, any at all, that deviate from sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, soli deo gloria, and sola scriptura. Because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And where do we find this out? In scripture alone. Those five solas, those five points, my friends, saints, are worth dying for. Dying for. Are we saved by Jesus and something we do? Does the following statement, in your estimation, add something to Jesus? Listen closely. For we labor diligently to write to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. Does this statement add something to Jesus? Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in Him And deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you. Let me get this straight. Is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ sufficient only after we have denied ungodliness and loved God? Saints, God's grace is sufficient to save sinners before they do anything. 
God's grace is the active agent in predestination, effectual call, regeneration, repentance, faith, justification, and on and on it goes. And by the way, those two statements are from the Book of Mormon. That is no gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ said that Christ alone has accomplished salvation and that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone. Our works, please understand this, our works, our good works, our merits, whatever you want to say, play absolutely no part in our salvation. Listen to this statement. Does this add something to Jesus? Listen carefully. Justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ. It is granted us through baptism. Are we justified before God because we are baptized? That's the same issue that Paul was was dealing with in this passage. What about this statement? In every circumstance, each one of us should hope with the grace of God to persevere to the end and to obtain the joy of heaven as God's eternal reward for the good works accomplished with the grace of Christ. Okay? Is heaven a reward given to us by God because of the good works we have done, even if those good works that we have done were done with the grace of Christ? Grace is lost entirely when you add even a little bit of works into it. You lose the gospel. Good works, listen very carefully, I know I'm being theological. Good works are a result of salvation, a result of being saved, not a contributing factor in being saved. Those two statements were from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1995. The Council of Trent, uh, which condemns as heresy the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is still very much embraced by the Roman Catholic Church. It's at the core of what they would consider gospel. Even many Protestants add things to the gospel. It is widespread for Protestants to see saving faith as a meritorious work. Many understand faith to be done independently of God, and you know how it goes. God has done everything for you. Satan has done everything against you. Now it is up to you. You just need to reach out and grab it for yourself. Everything has been done. It's in your court. You become the deciding factor in salvation. It's yours for the taking. And therein, faith is no longer a gift or the means God uses to save, but it is a work which elicits God's saving grace. Are you following me? Many Protestants see their faith, see their choice as the decisive and final factor in their salvation, instead of seeing their faith as a gift from God, making God the decisive and final factor in their salvation. Think of the amount of people going, going to church these days that actually believe that if they do enough good, they will go to heaven. Widespread in the church. Widespread. Think of all the people who believe God sees them as good because of all the bad things they avoid. 
Well, I don't do that. Well, I never. Well, it is. Paul wanted the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord alone. Alone. He's it. He's all my joy. He's all I have. That's what he wanted. He wanted to protect them against false teachers who added something to Jesus, who added something to the gospel. So he taught them again the guts of the gospel here in chapter 3. It was such a serious matter because some of us, we might like, oh, I mean, does theology really make that much difference? What about doctrine? Oh, it makes a huge difference, church. Be discerning, biblically discerning. This is such a serious matter that Paul actually placed the Judaizers outside of God's covenant people. Even though they were circumcised ethnic Jews, they were outside. Can you see that from the text? Adding something to Jesus is infinitely serious. Fourth point. Understand who the true people of God are. When Paul said, for we are the circumcision, he was effectively saying, we are true Israel. We are the true people of God, the covenant people of God. And he used a figure of speech called a synecdoche. I'm sure you use that word all the time, synecdoche. How many of you have never heard the term synecdoche? It's a weird word. Say it. Say it. It's fun. Synecdoche. It's the last little E that's kind of like weird. Synecdoche. Kids, you can have fun with that with your parents. Synecdoche. Synecdoche. Anyway, it is when a, a part is used to represent the whole. So if you drove up into, in, at my house or whatever and I shouted to you, I like your wheels, you would understand me to be saying, I like your car. But I never said car, the whole, I just used a part of it to reference the whole car. That's synecdoche. A part for the whole. Circumcision was a part of the Old Testament ceremonial Jewish law, which signified, this is very important, signified a change of heart in God's people. That's what, it's, that's what it was about, the heart. Here in verse 3, Paul used circumcision to represent true Israel by contrasting true Israel with dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh, who just simply thought that they were part of true Israel. The circumcision of the flesh has never, never, ever, 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 ever in the history of the world made anyone a child of God. Only God can perform the circumcision of the heart, which makes believing Jews and Gentiles the circumcision. Now, why did Paul write this? Because national identity and observing the law cannot be added to Christ. Nothing can be added to Jesus. Paul's logic, it, it just goes right after evangelical Christian thought and its view of Israel and what is so popular received as dispensational premillennialism. If you don't understand what that is, great, move on. Being from national Israel does not place someone automatically within God's true people or true Israel because being Israel has never been about external realities. It has always been about God's grace, God's covenant, and internal realities, which were signified by external realities. The external realities are only pointing to somewhere in internal reality. Circumcision of the flesh means nothing in regards to salvation. Circumcision of the heart means everything. 
absolutely everything. And God circumcises the heart. Now, I know this is sensitive. Some of you, uh, if you're eschatological junkies, so to speak, this, this might press up into your system. So just listen carefully. I know this is sensitive. I want to walk carefully and lovingly. But just listen to Paul. Paul is so good. Romans 2, chapter, 20, or chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Listen carefully. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Do you, do you understand that? Who are the Jews according to Romans 2? They are those who have had their hearts circumcised by the Holy Spirit. They are those who trust in the finished work of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Israel has never been primarily about national identity or external physical realities. True Israel has always been about a posture of the heart. Circumcision has always been about the heart about something that God's grace accomplishes in people. Now, if, if you wonder about that, I don't want to take time to defend it right now, but please write these down if you're questioning what I'm saying. Leviticus 26, verse 41. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Ezekiel 44, verse 7. Jeremiah 4, verse 4. Even Acts 7, verse 51. And Colossians 2, verse 11. Here's one that should be in the list, but I'll read this one to you, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, which gets at the core of circumcision. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. Circumcision has never been about the flesh but about the heart, the heart. Listen to Romans 9, verses 6 and 7. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Hmm? And not all children of Abraham, because, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The true Israel, the true people of God, the true children of Abraham are circumcised of heart. Heart. Believers, those who trust in Christ. Paul said, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Three things describe the true circumcision from the text. They are people who worship God by the Spirit of God. They are people who glory in Christ Jesus. And they are people who put no confidence in the flesh. The, the true circumcision worship God by the Spirit of God. Spirit-led and Spirit-filled worship is in the heart and in the life of the true circumcision. The hour is here when the worshipers, the true circumcision, worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Who is the truth? The true circumcision, glory in Christ Jesus. This is awesome. I love this point. That means they take pride in Jesus Christ. They express the importance of Jesus. 
They, they brag about Jesus. They rejoice in Jesus. It is impossible to brag about something like circumcision or ethnicity and at the same time brag about the sufficiency of Christ. You can't do it. The true people of God boast in Christ alone. Glory in Christ alone. So then, look for the people who glory in Christ alone, and there you will find the circumcision. Lastly, the true circumcision put no confidence in the flesh. The word confidence here is trust or reliance. The true people of God have no confidence. They they put absolutely no trust in the flesh. That the flesh can justify them. John Calvin understood Paul to mean everything that is outside of Christ. You name it, fill in the blank, get creative, put it in there. If it's outside of Christ, it is not effective to justify you, period. End of story. Not putting confidence in the flesh and glorying in Christ go hand in hand. They're they're really two sides of the same coin. To test the test of whether someone is among the true circumcision is whether they worship God by the Spirit of God, whether they glory and gloat and rejoice in Jesus Christ, and whether they put absolutely no confidence whatsoever in their flesh. If Christ isn't enough to justify you and activities and accomplishments must be added, you haven't yet heard the gospel. You haven't yet understood what the gospel is all about. Christ alone is sufficient. So glory in him. Rejoice in him. Before we leave verse 3, notice the Trinity. Did you catch it? Spirit, God, and Christ Jesus. We rejoice in worshiping the one and only triune God of the universe. The last point is simple and it sets us up for next week. You have no righteousness outside of Christ. None. None. Verses four through six deliver this death blow to the flesh, proving it useless, absolutely useless in regards to justification. If anyone could put confidence in the flesh, it was Paul. Oh, was it Paul? But instead, Paul rendered the flesh lost. Just listen, though I myself has reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Now, you step back. That's impressive. Oh, man, I don't even come close to what Paul was. If righteousness was measured by law-keeping and pure national identity, Paul was among the most righteous. But Paul's point, what he's getting at here, was to prove every external acclaim as garbage, rubbish, animal excrement compared with Christ. If Paul boasted in his spotless Jewish privilege and acclaim, he could no longer boast in Christ alone. One or the other, not both, Paul may, may seem like a little bit arrogant here for listing all of these things, but he was actually showing any fleshly accomplishment, any accolade or achievement, worthless in light of Christ. So let's quickly go through this resume. Number one, Leviticus 12.3 says, And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Paul's circumcision was ideal, top-notch, 
Top notch. Number two, Paul was a descendant of Abraham, a national. He was from national Israel, pure of any Gentile ancestry. Number three, Paul descended from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the youngest son of Israel and born to Rachel, the wife that uh, Israel loved most. Saul, the first king of Israel, was born of the tribe of Benjamin, and Paul was likely named after the king. Four, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, Greek culture spread throughout the world. Jews assimilated to Greek culture, and many lost the Hebrew language and the Hebrew culture. But the purest of the pure retained the Hebrew language and culture. Paul was among them. Number five, Paul was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the strictest party of Judaism. They were intelligent, powerful elites who, who lived by the strictest moral standards. That meant he was morally superior, he was devout, he was meticulous, disciplined in his law-keeping. Paul was actually a son of Pharisees. Wow. Number six, Paul said in Galatians 1.13, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And the next verse shows that he was on the fast track of Judaism. He was beyond his peers in his progression. He took Jewish tradition so seriously. He fought tooth and nail to defend Judaism throughout the, the world. Seven. Blameless under the law. That doesn't mean that he thought he was morally perfect. It means he was meticulous in keeping the law and living an upright Jewish life. Dr. Johnson noted that Paul was speaking as his colleagues in Pharisaic Judaism would have spoken of a consistent and conscientious observance of the law, including its provisions for the removal of guilt and defilement through repentance and sacrifice. Excuse me. So blameless in this context does not mean perfection. It can't. Because Paul knew the importance of repentance and sacrifice. But it is setting the moral bar so high. So high. All of this to say that if anyone had any reason to put confidence in themselves, it was Paul. If anyone could have been justified by Jesus plus works, it would have been Paul. But Paul said, for we are the circumcision who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul, Paul didn't, didn't put anything in any stock in himself whatsoever. None. Absolutely none. Please listen again to verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Every single religious position and achievement he listed, all of which would have meant a great big deal to the dogs and evildoers and mutilators of the flesh, was not profit or gain for Paul. It was loss. Complete and utter loss for the sake of Christ. See, in order to experience the righteousness of Christ as gain, this is an important application as I bring it to a close, he needed to count his own righteousness as loss. Because it was loss. And that's what Paul did. For the sake of Christ, gaining Christ, he counted it all loss. See, you can't trust Christ and at the same time trust yourself. It's one or the other. He could not hold on to his earthly status or achievements or his righteousness and at the same time boast in Christ's righteousness and all that he had done for him. One had to go. go. And Paul was very clear all his earthly status and achievement was counted as loss because Christ was gain. 
and the only hope of Paul being considered righteous by God. Do you realize, saints, that you have no righteousness outside of Christ? It's not in you. You don't have it. You have no gain outside of Christ. You you know, think about it this way. What have you done in your life which is going to outshine Christ? What? Testimony? Anyone? What have you done that's more sufficient to save yourself than what Christ has done for you? Nothing. Nothing. You have done nothing that makes you righteous before God. You failed and Christ succeeded. That's what happened. And that's good news, my friends. That's the best of news. Because even though you failed, even though I failed, you are counted righteous by God because of the righteousness of Christ alone imputed to you through faith. There is justification before God and it comes exclusively through Christ which makes Christ infinitely valuable. So rejoice in him, boast in him, brag about him, talk about him, let everybody know it's all about him and it has nothing to do with you except that he saved you and that's awesome. That has something to do with you. The Lord has done for you what the law could not do. Jesus is great. So here's what you can do if you actually apply this message. It's simple, but this is gonna really help you. It's gonna boost you if you get this. Leave the self-sufficiency behind. You don't have to carry that burden. You don't. Christ has carried it. Don't you carry it. Don't be self-sufficient. Be dependent on him. Leave the self-sufficiency behind. But there's something else that you can do. Leave your insecurity behind. Because you don't have to perform and be the best. Christ has done it for you, and you get all of it. It's just gushing on you. You just receive it by faith. Leave your insecurity behind. Leave your inadequacy behind and put your confidence in Christ for he alone is your righteousness. So, let us rejoice in the Lord. Father, your son is so precious to us. We rejoice in him that he is our song. He is our joy. He is our righteousness. He is our gladness. He is our peace and comfort He is our success. He is everything for us. We have nothing outside of Christ. I haven't done one good thing in my life. This church should expect nothing but bad from me. And yet when they see good, they see Christ in me. And when we look at each other and we say, wow, that was amazing. How did they do that? I just don't have that gift. Oh, God, you are showing us your son and his supremacy. He is our righteousness. Thank you that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and that your scripture is so clear, we only need it alone. Help us never to add anything to Christ, all for your sake. Amen.